Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. It really is good to see you here this morning. I trust our students had a great March week break, and you've come back all energized with lots of sleep after a week. I know some of you guys stayed locally and you slept in every day. Some did day trips. Some people went down south, but we're glad to have you back here uh, this morning. And uh, I want to reiterate what Pastor Dave said. We certainly want to uh, welcome all those who are here for the first time or the first time in a very long time. We're absolutely delighted that you would share part of your weekend with us, and I want to give a shout out as well to those who are joining us online. A warm welcome to you. I don't know if you know this, but we actually have people that watch us faithfully week after week after week after week, people right here in our own city, and then people literally uh, around the world, so we're very grateful. For those who are new, I'd like to be right up front. I don't like to have false pretenses. I like to tell people right off the bat, if you want to know what we're all about, we say it in one phrase. As a church, we're all about connecting people to Jesus and to one another. And in a world that is very broken, and we have seen that highlighted again this week with all the tragedy that has happened in New Zealand, but in a world that is so broken, Jesus is able to take those shattered lives and, and broken pieces and put them back together again. He's able to restore and to rebuild uh, lives. I, I often say this, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people alive, and it's alive in Christ. And so that's why it's very important for us that we connect people to Jesus, but we also realize we weren't we weren't designed to live in isolation. We were designed to live in relationship. God is a relation, uh, relational God. And so we just really believe that life is better when you do it together. And so that's who we are. That's what we're all about, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Uh, three weeks ago, we ended a series called um, New Through 30. And many of you took the challenge. And for those who weren't around here, we challenged our congregation to read through the New Testament in 30 days. And so many people did. It was very, very exciting. But what's been very exciting as well is how many people who weren't able to finish in 30 days, you know, because of this a season of life and busyness, are continuing to read. Every single week, I have people that come up to me. Hey, I just finished. I just finished. This week, and someone said, 57 days, but I did it. I did it. And I'm so excited. There's something exciting about God's people digging into God's word, studying it and reading it. But we don't want to be just uh, hearers of the word and just readers of the word. We also want to be known as doers of the word. So it's been very, very exciting. Well, today, I believe, is the best day of your life. What? How's that even possible, Donald? No, not, not because your life is perfect, not because it's lack of problems. But see, yesterday is gone, and tomorrow we're not promised. So today, the best day of your life. So let's fully engage and invest in it. Well, last week we began this brand new series that we entitled God in the Shadows. We're making our way through the book of Esther. And, and so many times we ask the question, God, where are you? I can't see you. I, I can't feel you. I don't sense your presence. I, I don't feel like you're, I don't hear from you. Uh, has it ever been in your life where you've just felt like your prayers, that God was too distant to hear your prayers? Uh, that God was just way too busy, maybe, to deal with what's going on in your life? Haven't you just wished that sometimes God would just reveal himself much more clearly? I mean, have you ever wondered, like, where is God when things are going so wrong? Like, life seems to be so messed up, and you're kind of just wondering, God, 
where are you in all of this? And you simply want to shout out, God, I need you. Where are you in this mess? And what I'm discovering, the older I get, is that God is doing far greater things than you and I maybe even recognize or give him credit for. As we stated last week, we all love to see when God puts his glory on display in miraculous ways. I mean, we love reading that story where, you know, God divides the Red Sea and the people of God walk across on dry land. Who doesn't love that story? We love the stories where Jesus feeds, you know, 5,000 men, up to 20,000 people with, you know, two fishes and five loaves. Who doesn't like that story? I mean, we love that story, you know, where God, the people of God march around the city of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Who doesn't love stories like that? Or, or the story where Gideon has 300 men and, and they defeat an entire military of the Midianites. And there were so many of them, they couldn't even number 300 men. We love those stories, but you know, oftentimes, God just uses the everyday things of life. Many times, he just likes to remain anonymous. We tend to say, oh, what a coincidence that this happened. But in reality, we just didn't recognize that God was at work. And what makes the book of Esther so unique and so different than any other book in all of the Bible is the fact that it doesn't mention God at all in the book. I mean, let's be honest, that's a strange thing, that there would be a book in the Bible that doesn't talk about God, doesn't mention the name God. A 10 chapters, 167 verses, and not one mention of God. I mean, why would God even allow a book to be in the Bible that doesn't even mention his name? I mean, there's got to be some purpose that God would have this Cinderella story in the Bible for us to learn something about himself. You know, for centuries, Christians just kind of didn't know how to deal with it. It was a great story for the Jewish people. They loved it, but for Christians, for centuries, they just kind of avoided studying the, this particular book. But I do believe it's a book that we all can relate to because, let's be honest, all of us have those questions in our mind, those seasons in our life where we do question and want to know, where is God? In the mess that I'm finding... And when you, can't locate, when you can't locate God, then what? I mean, what is a man or a woman to do if God can't be located? Well, I don't want to confuse you by, by any means. Just because God's name is not mentioned in the book does not mean he's not there. In fact, when you read through the book, you can put the hand of God, you can trace his fingers, and every single page of the book of Esther. He's actually everywhere. And, and this is an epic story. And as the curtain rises and we see the characters and we, and we see Esther, um, this orphan girl, and then we see the, the invisible hand of God at work as he saves her life and, and her relatives' lives and the life of her people. I mean, really, the book just blows our minds to think what God is doing behind the scenes. There's a much larger picture that is happening than oftentimes what you and I can see. And there's much to be learned about God when he doesn't make himself obvious in places and times as we learn about when he does make himself. Does anyone here today need to be reminded that God hasn't forgotten you? God hasn't forgotten you.
God hasn't forgotten you. Christian theology is as much about the unseen God as it is the seen God. And I think there's lessons for us to learn that we would never learn if we just always saw him. See, sometimes God really is in the shadows. Always present, but sometimes in the shadows, but always there. And as we make our way through this book, uh, this series, we're going to discover that God really has designed for each of us a destiny, specifically for us. And yes, it's true. It's going to take courage, and it will take perseverance. Nonetheless, we have a destiny. We've been created with destiny. There is this theology called providence. It would be very hard to read through the book of Esther if you didn't know about what providence was because you would read through the book and you'd think, well, it's a great story. But it's the providence of God that helps explain everything that is going on. Helps us move through life when it's quiet spiritually in our lives. The providence of God and the sovereignty of God. I love how Tony Evans describes providence. He says, providence is God holding the steering wheel of history behind the scenes. God achieves his sovereignty by his providence. And providence is the miraculous and the mysterious way God works things to bring about his sovereignty. And as we looked into the, the book last week, we literally have to step back in time because it's just so different than how you and I live today. I mean, where this is a time period where there's one global world power, the Persian Empire, and they control the entire world. And there's one king, and his name is King Xerxes, and what he says is the law of the land. It doesn't matter what anybody, there's no appeal course to go to. What he says is it. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, because I want to let you know, we always, every week, look at the Bible. We open it, we read it. So if you don't own a Bible, we'll give you one today so you can have your own copy. I realize a lot of you have it on electronically on your phones as well, so that's great. But take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. And we just started, uh, just got into a couple verses last week. And if it's a hard, time, a hard book to find, just open it in the middle. You'll come to Psalms. Turn left, you'll see Job, and then there's Esther right in front of that book of Job. Esther, and what we're going to discover in Esther chapter 1, there's trouble in the kingdom. <laughs> the king's marriage is a mess. That's what we're going to discover. And last week we looked at the fact that the king has thrown a six-month party uh, for six months to, to kind of demonstrate his splendor of his kingdom and uh, then he decides that he's going to end that six-month period with a week-long celebration where everybody in the city is invited from the least to the greatest and wine will be flowing you can have as much as you want you can drink it any way that you want and that's what's happening here and so what's happening is the king has uh, one room with all of his boys and they're partying hardy and the queen has her room with all the girls and, and they're partying as well. And then the king decides, I want to top off this celebration by doing something really special. And we find out what that is in verse 10. It says, on the seventh day, so that's the last day of the seven-day celebration, when King Xerxes was high in spirits, <laughs> you know what that means, right? He wasn't going to pass the breathalyzer test. 
Like he's, he's not really, should be driving. Right? He's, really, what he's saying, he's drunk. So when he's high in spirits with wine, he's, he's drunk. He says from wine, he says he's high in spirit from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Uh, Mehuman, Bestha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abatha, Zephar, and Carcass. To bring before him Queen Vashti. Go get Queen Vashti. Wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles. For she looks lovely, or she's lovely to look at. And when the attendants delivered the king's command to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. And so he wanted to cap off this seven-day celebration by bringing his wife in and, and letting everyone see how beautiful she was, and he refu she refuses to come. Boy, Houston, we got a problem happening here. Because it says the king became furious. See, it wasn't just that she didn't uh, obey her husband. She didn't obey the king. <laughs> like he's made a command, and he has not obeyed. In fact, as I was reading through chapter 1 of Esther, I couldn't help but think of the Jerry Springer show. I don't know if you've seen that, if you know what that is. It's like a talk show, and he usually brings kind of dysfunctional families on the show, and they kind of air all their laundry, and then they start throwing chairs back and forth at each other, and they bleep out words and all that kind of... Well, that's what's happening right here. I was kind of picturing this. If, you know, uh, if Jerry had a microphone... I don't know if you've ever seen that show, but Jerry's always kind of like this. You know, just like, so, let me explain this, what's happening. That's what he does. So I'm trying to picture Jerry saying, okay, um, Xerxes, explain to me what happened that night. And the king just simply said, well, all I wanted was to have my woman beside me. I mean, I just, you know, what's a man without a woman beside him? And I just, that's all I wanted. I wanted her to stand beside me. I mean, I'm throwing this big party. I just wanted her to meet my guests. What's the big deal about that? Which I think Jerry would grab the mic and say, well, Vashti, I don't get that. Why is that such a big deal? Your husband just wants you to stand beside him, support him in this party that he's throwing. Which then I, I believe the queen would respond, he is not interested <laughs> in that. He's interested in parading me like I'm some possession of his. Wanted me to strut my stuff in front of his group of drunken boys. Which then Jerry, I think, would say to the king of Xerxes, he's like, whoa, well, that doesn't seem like that's appropriate, king. Tell me your side of the story. And so then he begins to explain his side of the story. And then before you know it, you know what happens? It says he becomes so angry, he starts throwing chairs to himself. Like he is furious as to what has happened. So you know what the king does? It's amazing. He puts a committee together. He puts a committee together to try to figure out what he's going to do with his wife. I mean, she has embarrassed him in front of his boys. She's ditched him. And King Xerxes goes to this committee, this committee of advisors. He goes to his boys' club and says, what should I do with my wife? And we find out the answer right here. And if uh, we'd almost think it was funny, it weren't so sad. In fact, let's look at it. Pick it up in verse 15. This is the king. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have t uh, taken to her. Then uh, Mimukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done you wrong. And not only has done the king, 
but also against all the nobles and peoples of all the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise all their husbands, and they'll say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and the Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect or disregard. They're so worried what's going to happen in their home. <laughs> like, okay, king, king, whoa, whoa, whoa. We have got to put something together. Uh, we just can't allow this to happen. When, basically, when word spreads, there'll be an uprising of women who won't respect us men and and uh, we've got to do something about it. See, King, not only has she, she messed up you, but she's gonna, she has the potential to mess up the entire kingdom where it gets out on the streets. We're going to have an uprising. King, this is your chance right now to squash any uprising from the women taking over. And you know what? It sounded good to King Xerxes. He said, yeah, that makes sense to me. But then we find, as you read the story, he becomes quite disappointed that he had made that decision because what it, the decision was that she would never be allowed in his presence again. And once in the, the laws of the Medes and Persian, once that decision is made, you can't reverse it. Like once a decision is made, no chance to reverse it. So it's law. We find out a little bit later he remembers Vashti and kind of disappointed uh, to what he has done. He's, uh, maybe he's even become a little bit lonely it all sounded so good at the beginning in his anger, but now things are beginning to change. So here we are, we're kind of wrapping up chapter one, and there's no introduction of the main character. Like, uh, I thought this book was about Esther. Where is Esther? Why is she staying? Why is she remaining in silence? Where is she? And um, we're going inter to get introduced to her here in, in chapter two. And you know what we're going to see? We're going to see how God takes the ridiculous and makes it a reality and makes it a reality yet esther is going to trade in her old neighborhood for the palace something that nobody could ever predict it no psychic could ever seen this coming only god could be able to control those events that would change her life completely so let's pick up the story in chapter two in verse one it says later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai. The king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let the, uh, then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Surprise, surprise, he liked this advice. Bring beautiful women to me, and then I get to decide who will be my wife. When I read that, all I could think of was the TV show The Bachelor. Like, this is on a big scale without TV cameras. All these women, you know the show The Bachelor, right? I mean, there's a handsome bachelor, and there's all these women he gets to date, and at the end of every show, somebody doesn't get a rose, and you're just kind of hoping for a rose. You're hoping to be the last girl to be chosen. You get the rose, and hopefully you get married and live happily ever after. Well, that's what's basically happening here. And so as I'm 
reading through this, I think to myself, okay, so there's a party in the land. But, of course, we know God would have nothing to do with that. And, and then there's, um, tr- um, the king has some problems with his wife, but, well, God wouldn't be in that. And, and, and then, and we like it. And then, you know what? God takes an orphan girl and puts her in a place that no one would ever dreamt. And we say, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. Or did he? Or did he have something with all these events that seem to be taking place? Now, God wouldn't have anything to do with a beauty contest. He wouldn't be in that. Or is he? Well, let's continue with the story. It says now in verse 5, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew named Mordecai. I think that's very interesting. Why is, why is that brought out? I mean, we are, the whole story is about a, a Gentile king, a Gentile party, a, a Gentile marriage that's falling apart, a, a Gentile divorce, a, a Gentile beauty pageant. All of a sudden, there's this man introduced, and it says specifically that he's a Jew. Why, like, I don't get, why, why is that? Why is that so important in the story? Well, let's continue reading. He says, um, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive was Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadashah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and feature, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her mother, her father and mother had died. Well, we finally get introduced to the, the main character of the story, Esther, and we were given some very important information. And what's interesting that in the, in the empire of Persia, there's a lot of anti-Semitism happening. Uh, we see it all, we turn on your news, you see it all over the world, it still continues today. But in the, in the empire of Persia, it ran rampant. In fact, when we get that little piece of information that Mordecai is a Jew, it's a very piece of, uh, important piece of information because later in the book, he will be referred to as that Jew. So it's an important piece of information that's being given to us when we hear that Mordecai is a Jew. We also find out he's the one who has raised Esther. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he basically adopts her as his own daughter. Now, there's no mention. There's no mention of Mrs. Mordecai. So I don't know. Maybe he's a single dad trying to raise his cousin who's become like a daughter to him. See, Esther's an orphan. Uh, She has no mother or father. I don't know how they died. I don't know if they both died at the same time. I don't know if they died at different times. But he's the one giving credit to her being raised. And, and, and I know for myself personally, I lost my father at 33 years of age. And, and I know the profound impact that it had on me. Uh, my sister actually was still in high school when my dad passed away. And, and you know the profound impact when there's not a, a dad in the life. So I look at this young lady, no dad and no mama in her life. And she's a, an orphan, a Jewish orphan, who will become the most powerful and influential woman in the entire Persian Empire. No one 
would have, could have ever seen this coming. Nobody could have predicted this. This would be considered crazy talk. This is the kind of th- stuff that would cause people to haul you off to an insane asylum. Like, that's crazy. Jewish orphan girl is going to become queen. That's why I said this is where God literally takes the ridiculous and makes it reality. And as I was kind of reading through this, I, I couldn't help but think of 1 Corinthians. And let me just read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians that helps me understand this story just a little bit better. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and it says in verse 26, Brothers, think of what you Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become For us, wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's far more room for God's strength and glory and a lot less for us to boast boast about. And God is, in his sovereignty, chooses an orphan girl to save an entire Jewish race from genocide. And it just reminds me again, God has created all of us with a destiny. And for Esther to reach her destiny, yes, it was going to take a little bit of courage and perseverance, just like it will for us, to reach that destiny that God has created and designed specifically for us. And then she is taken to the palace because of something she had no control of, by the way, her beauty. Her beauty got her put in a very secular environment and when you read through the rest of the chapter you discover that all the women are given one year to prepare themselves with beauty treatments and and Esther specifically is given seven maids to wait on her like she is the ultimate spa treatment Esther has here and what I find interesting it says right in the chapter her, her cousin Mordecai says now now Esther Don't tell anybody of your heritage. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, Mordecai, you don't even want her in that kind of environment. Why wouldn't you just tell her? Tell them you're a Jew, and then they'll cast you out. They won't keep you for a part of the harem. They'll know that you are a girl that was taken in captive, and they won't want that. But that's not the advice the cousin gives. He says, Esther, when you're taken in, don't tell a soul who you are. Or what is your background? And then in verse 15, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle, Abihail, to go into the king. By the way, she has been preparing for this day for one year, for an encounter with the king. To go for, she asked for nothing other than what uh, Higai, the king's unit, who was in charge of the harem, 
suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. We all know what's going on here, right? This, like, there's sex before marriage this particular night. You think to yourself, what in the world is she doing in this situation? She was different, the Bible says, than all the other girls. When you read through that chapter, when you read verses 8 and 9, it says there was something about her that stood out from all the rest. And what's interesting, it was her, her past was part of shaping her to be what she needed to be for her destiny. Just like your past is not a blight on you, but it's for us to learn from and to be ready for our future. I, I think, personally, our past is just part of our redemption story. We get reminded where God has dragged us from and where we're going. So looking at this, this girl, Esther, um, from the outside, I think all of us would have felt bad for her. We'd have said, oh, poor little girl. She lost her mom. She lost her dad. Life isn't being very fair to her. God, where are you? And we'd all be, at, would be asking the same question. God, where are you? We'd all be wondering, God, what is going on with this little girl's life? But just because you cannot see God does not mean he's not there. That's the truth. And what God is going to do, he's going to use the affections of King Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, to accomplish God's purposes. And then in verse 21, I love this. It says, during the time Mordecai, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officers, officials were hanged on the gallows. And this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. In the presence of the king, it is written down that a man named Mordecai, a Jew, by the way, not mention that he's a Jew, but Mordecai has saved the king. And God has put a plan together to protect his people who refused to go back to Jerusalem. I don't understand why, I actually don't understand why Mordecai and Esther didn't go back to Jerusalem. They were free to go back, but for some reason the people of God stayed there. I still haven't figured out why, why that would happen. And so as I'm reading through this story, I'm going, okay, okay, so God allows there to be a party. Uh, God allows there to be a, a friction between the king and the queen. And, and then God allows there to be some kind of a beauty pageant. And then God allows some orphan girl who's taken captive to be chosen as the most powerful woman in the empire, in the world at the time, the most influential woman. And I think to myself, well, that's just a reminder that God is always working behind the scenes of our life it just happens to be she's a beautiful jewish girl but so many times people would simply say well what a coincidence that was so esther having sex before marriage was for her outside of god's will esther marrying a gentile uh, was outside of god's will and yet god used what he had to get what he wanted so he could fulfill his promises to his people which was to protect them it just happened by chance. 
We say happen chance. Oh, what, what luck. What a coincidence that Mordecai just happened to be at the gate that day at that time when that conversation was happening. Just what a coincidence that he would have connections with people into the palace, his cousin who happens to be married to the king, that she could give that kind of information to the queen, which then could relay it to the king and his life be spared. Wow, what a lucky day that was. You see, when God is on the move behind the scenes, you don't often see him, the work that he is doing. But it doesn't mean he's not at work. Oh, he's at work, all right. He's at work. Even when you don't see his name anywhere, even when you can't hear from him, even when you can't feel him, even when you can't sense his presence, even when you don't hear from him, it doesn't mean that God is not active and alive. It may mean he's in the shadows, but boy, he is always there. He's just doing something far bigger and greater than what you and I can see. And that's where I think it comes to us where we've got to come to the place where we can just trust God for the place that we are in right now. And I know, I know it's challenging. I find that extremely challenging to trust God when the circumstances of our life are just seem to be falling apart all around us because we, we start grabbing for straws. God, where are you? I don't even understand what's happening. And yet, can we trust him in the situation? Like when we just get a diagnosis of cancer, can we trust him? Well, God, I, this is far beyond me. I, I, I'm going to have to trust you. When, when there's some marriage friction happening and families seem to be falling apart, can we trust him that he's at work, that he's working behind the scenes of our life? I have said for years, the devil is in the details. Have you ever said that? Oh, the devil's in the details. I'm reading through this book, and I'm like, the devil? No, no, no. God is in the details. It's God that's working behind the scenes of our life. It's God that's working out all the details. And what I love about it is that he's working it all out for his glory and your good. That's God. Working it all out for his glory and for your good. So we can be very confident to say this morning, God is in the details, and I can trust him because of that. Let's pray.